0: Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. I am your host, Michael Delaware, and today I'm going to go into the story of Erastus Hussey and the Underground Railroad. And I'm going to cover a lot of material that I've not seen covered elsewhere, anywhere in podcasts or on the Internet. So come along and join me. To begin, let's talk about some of the early history of racist Hussey, and then I also want to go into an interview that he gave in the Sunday Morning Call of 1885, and then I want to focus on some of the myths and stories that float around all kinds of communities around Southwest Michigan, and, and what I can point to as being more factual, and what is more urban legend and not based on fact. So Erastus Hussey uh, had a biographical write-up on him in a book called The Biographical Review of Calhoun County, Michigan. And this was put together by a company out of Chicago called Hobart Mather. And it was published in 1904. And it describes Erastus Hussey as an honored and respected by all among men in Michigan. The reasons he was so well respected is that He was considered to have the highest principles and moral courage, an unfaltering adherence to what he believed in to be right. So who was this man? Well, Aristus Hussey was born in Scipio, now Ledyard Township, Cuega County, New York, on December 5th, 1800. His family ancestry could be traced to England, and Christopher Hussey was the first of his family line to come to America And he was escaping religious persecution in England. And they first settled on Nantucket Island. The family had characteristics of sociability, benevolence, and generosity, combined with a strong love for freedom and equality. Erastus Hussey would spend his early boyhood years and also his early manhood years on a farm on the eastern shores of Cayuga Lake, New York. His educational privileges were limited to those afforded by the common schools of the time. When he was 14 years of age, he attended school only through the winter months for his labors were needed on the home farm. But he had access to a good library and eagerly availed himself of the opportunity for reading in his leisure moments. As he approached manhood, he prepared for teaching and later followed that profession through the winter seasons. While in the summer months, he continued to work on the farm. He had ambitions at one point to become a lawyer, but circumstances in his life never permitted him to achieve that goal. When he became an adult, he visited Erie County, New York, with the intention of establishing a farm of his own, but decided that he didn't like the land and the area surrounding it. So he journeyed on through Ohio and Indiana and into Michigan, where he ultimately decided to locate himself in Michigan. He had no capital, but he had been able to save up the sum of $250 through industry and hard work. So when he decided to go to Michigan, he started on foot for Buffalo, walking 45 miles the first day, And then he reached the port and took a passage on a boat called Superior, the only steam craft on the lake at the time, on the 25th of December, 1824. And he landed in Detroit. After exploring the countryside for a period of time, he finally decided to purchase 150 acres of land in the area known today as Plymouth Township in Wayne County. The following day after purchasing the land, He took passage to Erie, Pennsylvania, and then walked 90 miles to Collins, where he stayed among friends and taught school for four months, after which he returned home to New York. In 1826, he again returned to Michigan and started to make some improvements on the land that he'd purchased. On the 21st of February, 1827, Mr. Hussey was married to Sarah Eddie Bowen, a daughter of Benjamin and Lucretia Bowen of Coiga County, New York. She was born in Worcester, Massachusetts, and was the eighth generation of Welsh ancestors. The young couple started for their home into the western wilderness, and they arrived there on the 27th of July, and at first occupied a dilapidated cabin, which had only one window. At that point, Mr. Hussey's capital then consisted of about $47 and his land. Soon, both he and his wife became ill, but their lives were saved by a local doctor named Dr. Webb, a pioneer physician who was well-known in the area and also a close friend. They then built a better log cabin on the farm and moved into it on the 1st of January, 1828. And on the 27th Of January that year, their only child, whom they named Susan, was born. In that spring, Mr. Hussey entered into his own public career for the first time, and he was elected as the road commissioner for Michigan, in which capacity he served for nine years. In the meantime, he continued to work on his farm, and he built a beautiful home. Frequently, he supplemented his capital by money earned in teaching through the winter months. In 1836, again, he had failing health and sold his farm for $2,000, and he invested in some other land, but abandoned that eventually because of poor health. They then traveled to Ohio, Pennsylvania, and New York to the New England states in their carriage and stayed there through the succeeding winter, where he again engaged in teaching on the East Coast. It was in the spring of that year that he returned to Michigan, which had, in the meantime, been admitted to the Union as a state. He became very interested in aiding the shaping policy of the new state and entered public life again with a conscientious and patriotic zeal. He eventually located in Battle Creek, Michigan, in September 1838, and he joined a man by the name of Platt Gilbert, In the manufacturing of boots and shoes in which he had some previous experience and then he also conducted a grocery store and after a year mr hussey sold out from both of those ventures in 1839 he became the proprietor of a dry goods store which he conducted for several years and in 1843 admitted into a partnership with henry b deniman who afterwards married his daughter. In 1847, his firm was dissolved by mutual consent, and Mr. Hussey closed out his business. During that year, he built two-fifths of the Union Block in downtown Battle Creek. It was the first block structures in the city of Battle Creek, and it would be today where the Kellogg Foundation now stands. And he became very active in the public welfare of the community. He was among the first people to advocate for the establishment of the Union School, supporting it by a general tax making education free for everyone. He met fierce and bitter opposition to this, but ultimately the school systems were established in Battle Creek as a result of his labors. And he was chosen as one of the trustees of the new school and served as the director for three years. In 1847, he established the Michigan Liberty Press, which was the organ of the Liberty Party in the state, and Mr. Hussey became the in charge of the editorial department of that paper. And the motto of the paper was, eternal enmity to all kinds of oppression. Mr. Hussey was a strong member of the Whig Party, and he cast his first presidential vote for John Quincy Adams. He was a very large opponent at that point to slavery. And his advocacy for universal liberty brought him prominently in front of the people. Basically, he made it very clearly known that he supported universal liberty for everyone, including African Americans. He held the office of town clerk for three terms in Battle Creek, which was unusual at the time because it had previously been a Democrat Party stronghold, but he was able to persevere as a member of the Whig Party. In 1840, Mr. Hussey was a staunch supporter of William Henry Harrison. Essentially, he believed the Whig Party could take the measures to curtail the power of slavery. But when William Henry Harrison died, Shortly after taking office and President Tyler seceded him, he was dispelled of that idea with the Whig Party and quickly began to disassociate himself with that and joined the Liberty Party. About that time, the postmaster of Battle Creek started to refuse to deliver his Liberty Press speech newspapers, so he began to carry and deliver the newspaper himself all over the county. While he was away delivering the newspaper and delivering speeches about liberty around the county, his wife took over as the editorial department of the newspaper. In 1849, the newspaper office and all its fixtures were burned. There's a lot of speculation about that as to whether it might have been arson, and there's some different stories around the time that implied it could have been arson or just could have been an unusual circumstance because there was a stove manufacturing business next door. But those that actually ran into the building during the fire reported that it appeared to have been started by an incendiary device. So there's still some speculation on that, and we'll probably never know the real truth behind that. But essentially, the Liberty Press was burned to the ground, and he reestablished it later on in Marshall. But that only ran for a very short time before it eventually shut down. So during the years of the Civil War and before then, he was connected with the Underground Railroad, which I'll get into in a minute because he'll explain in an interview that he gave when he began working for the Underground Railroad. But some of the other facts about Erastus Hussey in 1849, he was elected to the House of Representatives in the state, and he was one of the five members of the Free Soil Party in the state of Michigan. And in 1852, he was nominated for lieutenant governor, and although he was defeated for that office, he was re-elected that same year as the county clerk for the Coalition Party. And in February 1854, he presided over the state convention of the Free Soil Party at Jackson and was appointed a member of the committee to call a meeting at Kalamazoo to consider the propriety of holding a convention of men opposing slavery. At Jackson, it was decided to hold a meeting in Marshall. And in July 1854, Mr. Hussey was made a member of the committee to draft And present a platform. And it was adopted without a dissenting vote and became the platform of the new Republican Party. Thus, to Michigan belongs the honor of organizing and naming the party. And it was in the fall of that year that he was elected to the state Senate and was the chairman of the Finance Committee and a member of the Joint Committee to perfect what was known as the Prohibitionary Liquor Bill the passes of which awoke widespread interest. He also introduced the Personal Liberty Bill, which, without conflicting with the United States laws, protected Michigan from kidnappers and secured the rights of fugitive slaves. Essentially, the Liberty Bill prevented slave catchers from coming to catch slaves in the state of Michigan which essentially shut down them entirely because it allowed them to be prosecuted as kidnappers, which was a big turning point in the fight against slavery here in Michigan. But prior to that, the Underground Railroad was in existence for many years. So now I'm going to go into some of the article about um, that. Mr. Hussey was quite involved, continued to be involved with politics. He was also involved with the nomination of President Lincoln from the state of Michigan and was involved in the convention where Lincoln was nominated. And there's a tremendous amount of interesting details in this biographical article. So in the Sunday morning call in 1885, he gave an interview. Now this was many years after slavery was abolished. So a reporter invited him to go to the newspaper and and to talk about the Underground Railroad. At the time, they were calling it the Underground Railway as well. And so in this article, Mr. Hussey describes that the Underground Railway came into existence in 1840 in the midst of the Harrison Campaign. It was a league of men who organized a system of conducting runaway slaves from Kentucky and other slave states to Canada. There were men who devoted their time in assisting the slaves across the Ohio River near Cincinnati and then sent them from station to station until they arrived in Canada. There were several branches of the Underground Railway. I was connected with the Central Michigan Route, which ran through Ohio, Indiana, and Michigan, he says. And then the uh, interviewer asked him, Mr. Hussey, when and how did you first connect yourself with the Underground Railway? And he goes on to say that it was in 1840, one day when I was in Detroit, a man came by the name of John Cross of Indiana and called at my house and inquired for me. He was very anxious to see me and would not even tell my wife what he wanted. My wife sent for Benjamin Richard, who worked for Jonathan Hart, but neither would he confide the object of his visit to him and so departed. I was in Detroit three or four days, and after I returned home, I received a letter from Mr. Cross. He informed me that he was establishing a route from Kentucky to Canada, through which escaped slaves could be conducted without molestation, and wanted me to take charge of the station in Battle Creek. That was the first I'd ever heard of the Underground Railway. Cross's letter I preserved for many years, but it is now lost. This is how I commenced to keep the station here in Battle Creek. Then the reporter who was interviewing him asked him, were you assisted by others? And this is a key point. His answer here is very essential to dispelling any myths about the Underground Railroad. And if somebody's trying to determine if a place had been part of the Underground Railroad, the next few answers that he gave in this interview pretty much clears up a lot of the facts on it. And he says, were you assisted by others? And he says, at that time, there were only five anti-slavery men in Battle Creek besides myself. Silas Dodge, Abel Densmore, Henry Willis... Theron A. Chadwick and Samuel Struther, a colored man. Others came to this place afterwards, however. So at the beginning in 1840, there were only five men besides himself that he would entrust to be involved with this station. And then the interviewer asked him, "What? why was it called the Underground Railway? And he says, because of the secret manner in which the slaves were carried through, it did not come in sight of men. They went through very secretly. They went as if carried through a hollow tube without ever being seen. Everything connected with it was conducted in the greatest of secrecy. Men brought the slaves across the Ohio River in rowboats. They deviated on the Ohio River, but ultimately came together on the main line on this side of the river and were then conducted through Indiana and Michigan. Stations were established every 15 or 16 miles in charge of good, true men. The fugitives were secreted in the daytime and carried through in the night. The interviewer then asked him, did the men who kept the stations get any pay? No, it was all without money and without price. It was all out of sympathy for the colored people and for the principle. We were working for humanity." Where was your station located? My dwelling house was the station, although I I often secreted the fugitives in other places. After the Union Block was built, I frequently secreted them there. At the time, I lived in a building which stood at the present site of the Weirston Holiday Block. Before that, it was the livery stable of J.L. Reed. There was Battle Creek's Underground Railway Station. This building was erected in 1836 or 37, and when I bought it, it was occupied by a cabinet shop owned by John Caldwell. I repaired the building and occupied the front of it as a store and used the upstairs and rear end for my dwelling. You afterwards moved into the house which was on the present site of the Adventist College, did you not? Yes, that was in 1855. We did not assist any fugitives then, as they went over a shorter route through Ohio by way of Sandusky and thence to Malden. And then the interviewer asked him, I've heard it stated, Mr. Hussey, that the cellar under the house, which stood on the site of the Adventist College, was built on purpose as a secreting place for escaped slaves. And he answers, so it was reported when the house was removed, but that was not strictly true. There were very few coming at that time, but I will guarantee, however, that if any slaves were secreted there, they were never captured. Where were the stations through Michigan located? Well, let's see. I can't tell you about the stations in Indiana. The route came into the state near Cassopolis, in the famous Quaker settlement. There was the good old Quaker Zachariah Sugard. There were several besides him. Among them was Stephen Bogue and Joel East. At Cassopolis, Parker Osborne was the agent. The next station that I remember was Schoolcraft in charge of Dr. Nathan M. Thomas, whom I believe still lives there. Then they came to climax... The station there was a little ways out of the village. The man there was Gardner. I think his first name was William. Battle Creek came next. Then it went on to Marshall where Jabez S. Fitch was the agent at Marshall. He was a gentleman with plenty of means and who stood high in the community. He was the first nominee on the liberty ticket for governor. Of course, he was not elected, but we always thereafter called him Governor Fitch. Then came Albion and Edwin M. Johnson. At Parma, I forgot the name of the agent, but I think it was Townsend E. Gidley. He was not strictly identified with the Liberty Party, but always rendered assistance in furthering the escape of fugitive slaves. At Jackson, there were three men, Lawson, Wilcox, Norman Allen, and one I can't remember. In the larger places, we had more than one man, so that if one chanced to be out of town, the other man could be found. At Michigan Center, Abijah Finch was the man. He was a gentleman of high standing. Finch was one of the men who was involved in the litigation many years ago with the Michigan Central Railroad Company called the Railroad War which was a famous case at the time. Apparently, he described there was some hostilities against the railroad at that time because the railroad had killed a number of cattle, as there were no fences during that time period. And so several men would stand by the railroad as the train was coming through and throw rocks at the car windows. And several of those men were sent to state prison. So anyways, he diverted a little bit there to talk about another story. But then he returned to describing that the next station was at Lena Y? and he'd forgotten the name of the agent at that point. And then there was also one at Grass Lake. And then there was one at Dexter that was run by Samuel Dexter and his sons. And there was one at Skio, which was run by a prominent man by the name of Theodore Foster. And then it was one at Ann Arbor run by Guy Beckley, who was the editor of the Signal for Liberty newspaper. And then he couldn't remember who the other agents were in Ypsilanti or Plymouth. And then they continued on from there on into Detroit. They would cross the river in Detroit into Canada from that point. So the uh, interviewer asked him, did you have a system of passwords? And he said, yes, we had words we used. The most common passwords was, can you give me shelter and protection to one or more persons? This was addressed by the agent or the person looking for a place of safety. So it sounds like the password system was in place, but it was simple but effective for what they needed it for. Then the interviewer asked him, uh, did you drive the fugitives through to Marshall yourself? And he says, sometimes I did, but often I got some person to go for me. Isaac Mott, when a boy was working for me, he used to frequently take them through Marshall." Sometimes others went. I used my own horse and wagon. Then he asked him, have you any idea how many fugitives you assisted through? And he says, I fed and gave protection to over a thousand fugitives and assisted them on to Canada. How long after the station was established before your first fugitives began to arrive? He says in four weeks after John Cross was here, two men came. He then interjected, By the way, I never met Cross until eight years afterwards at the great... Free Soil Convention in Buffalo. The two men referred to above were William Coleman and Stephen Wood. These men came under fictitious names and always retained those names. The fugitives were very frequently told to do that. Stephen Wood was shot and wounded in his attempt to escape. Dr. Thayer took 13 large shots out of his shoulder. And he asked, how did the slaves generally act when they arrived this far on their way from escape?" He said some were frightened, others were full of courage. Then he was asked how many usually came at a time, and he said from one to four. At one time, there was 45 fugitives in one night. It was after the attempt to capture the slaves at the Quaker settlement in Cass County. So that is uh, connected to the incident that I interviewed the Underground Railroad Society of Cass County on, and that, interview with them is available on my podcast. And that was a big, significant event, probably the largest attempt at capturing slaves in the history of the Underground Railroad in Michigan, and it happened in Cass County. And the long and short of it is the people in the Cass County area basically surrounded the um, slave catchers, separated them, convinced them they had to go see the magistrate over the matter. And while they went there, they got them arrested for a few days to hold them in jail, Why they rallied up all the slaves that were being sought after and attempted to be caught and move them down the Underground Railroad. There had been a big settlement of fugitive slaves that had been in a big uh, community there in Cass County, and they were making up homesteads and building a small village and getting along great with the people there, Um, but they were all in danger, so they rounded up all 40 to 45 of them at one time and said, look, why these guys are in jail, we're going to get you out of here and get you on your way to Canada. So that's what they did. And I think they specifically went after the list that the fugitive slave captures were after. And so that was um, a big crowd of people that were moved through the Underground Railroad that night. And so back to what Erastus Hussey was saying in the interview. Uh, He said, one night a man by the name of Richard Dillingman came to my house and informed me that there would be 45 fugitives and nine guards arriving in two hours. And they said, what do you do? I don't know. So his wife was sick in bed at the night, so it was really kind of a difficult time. But the first man uh, he met was a man by the name of Abel Dennison, and um, he then went to S.M. Dodge and Samuel Strother. And there was a man in town by the name of Lester Buckley, who owned a small, unoccupied dwelling house on the rear of a lot that was owned by a store. And so he went to see them and told them about his predicament, that he had this huge crowd of people coming through. And these were people that he could trust or at least had sympathies for what they were doing. So then they went around to um, gather up 60 pounds of flour and potatoes and rounded that up. And so they had to find places for these people to stay. And so they put them in that vacant house that they had. And it sounds like they also put them in a stable that night and they brought them food and fed them. So they stayed there during the daytime hours. So he described when they actually arrived that night, there were nine white men with them and they all acted as guards and ahead of them rode. Uh, a man by the name of Zachary Sugard. And he had a broad, white-rimmed Quaker hat on, and he was mounted upon a really nice-looking horse. They said he always had good horses. And he met him in front of his house, and he shook hands with him, and he told him of the arrangements that he had managed to make for the fugitives. And the man took off his hat, and with a military air and voice said, Right! About face! And they all faced and marched down to the house and took possession of the house. The nine uh, white men stopped at the hotel, and the people cared for their horses. And the fugitives had a jolly good time that night. They cooked their own supper of bread, potatoes, and pork as they were very hungry. And they relished the food tremendously. The next morning, half of them went to Canada and the others followed after that. So it looks like they broke them into smaller groups um, so as to not be noticed. And this was kind of the holding place for the immediate stopping place on the, uh, on the escape from Cass County. Then the interviewer asked him, did any slaves ever settle here in Battle Creek? And he said, all of them went on to Canada except four of them, uh, William Casey, Perry Stanford, Thomas Henderson, and Joseph Skipworth. Then he asked him, did you ever get into any trouble? And he said, no, I expected every day to be arrested, but I escaped all legal proceedings. And then he asked him, were you ever disturbed by the slave catchers? And he said, once word came that 30 armed men were on their way to capture the slaves in Battle Creek... And Dr. Thayer and himself printed out 500 handbills stating that they were prepared to meet them and that they better stay away from Battle Creek. And they basically circulated these handbills in the communities ahead of these slave catchers. So they apparently got the message and they never showed. He'd sent the messages along ahead of the slave catchers by Express Messenger. And um, it must have done the job because they never came through Battle Creek. And then the interviewer says, I suppose Battle Creek... Creek was well known to the slave dealers as a place for refugees or fugitives. He responded by saying the Quaker settlement in Cass County and the stations at Schoolcraft and Battle Creek were well known all through the South as the headquarters for escaped slaves and the names of the men who kept the stations were also well known to them. Then the interviewer asked him, I suppose that you met with many strange incidents. Certainly one day a slave woman who was assisting my family and had been here about a week when a party of slaves drove up. Among the number was a daughter whom she had not seen for 10 years. The recognition was mutual and the meeting was a very affectionate sight. And then he said, I could tell you hundreds of interesting incidents like that. And then when did the Underground Railway cease its operations? Not until the Emancipation Proclamation was issued. It was in existence from 1840 to 1865, a period of about 25 years. And then Erastus Hussey closed the interview by saying, it accomplished a noble work. So, Erastus Hussey passed away in January of 1889, and his wife passed away in March of 1899. And according to the Biographical Review article, their memory remains as a blessed benediction to those who knew them and to all who live after them with the fruits of their labor which were so apparent. Who can measure their influence or gauge the good which they wrought? So that's the story of Erastus Hussey and the Underground Railroad. And there's probably a lot more that could be told on the story, but some of the myths about the Underground Railroad can be dispelled. Um, And I tell you, this because i have lived in battle creek for 21 years and one of the first things i ran into when i first moved here was somebody was trying to sell me a house and they were trying to say oh this is rumored to have been on the underground railroad And at the time, I didn't have a clue about any of that. And I said, oh, that's cool. But factually, it was not where it was located. I've looked it up. There's no way. It wasn't anywhere on the route, and it wasn't one of the the places on the route. The route between Battle Creek came from Climax to a racist Husty's house here. He sometimes kept them at his dry goods store that he kept in town and he also described other places and property that he owned in town or worked with other men. So they would have been close to the center of the downtown area. There's also uh, rumor that there was an underground railroad station over at Barney's Tavern and because they had found tunnels when they renovated the place and so rumors abounded, oh that must have been where they, they held fugitive slaves and that is also incorrect. The tunnels that were found or rumored to have existed under Barney's Tavern were likely places that they were uh, stashing or holding liquor because um, there was a period even before the era of Prohibition that there was a very big temperance movement here in Battle Creek and the possession of liquor was often attacked and persecuted. So and then when Prohibition came around, there were raids and that sort of thing. So a lot of these places that were places of entertainment and people to gather would hide caches of liquor in the basement or in the tunnels, and they'd they'd hide them really discreetly so they could stash away liquor in the daytime. And sometimes they were even places that they manufactured liquor. Um, uh, Barney's Tavern, for example, was known to have made his own brew based on the early articles that I found. So it could have been a place where he was brewing his own liquor. So that was probably what was going on with Barney's Tavern. And also, you have to look at it when someone says they had an Underground Railroad house you have to look at the age the home was built. It had to have been built before 1855, and more likely a decade before that, because as per Erastus Hussey's interview, there wasn't any underground railroad activity happening by 1855. It was going through another route in through Ohio and Sandusky, Ohio area. But that's going to conclude today's episode on the story of Erastus Hussey and the Underground Railroad. I hope you found it interesting. I think his life is one of the more fascinating ones here in Battle Creek um, because he was a very caring and passionate man. And today there is a large sculpture in Battle Creek. It is the largest sculpture commemorating the Underground Railroad in the United States. And it's here in Battle Creek and Erastus Hussey Is depicted in that sculpture, and he's standing in the forefront of it when you visit. He's also uh, standing next to Harriet Tubman, who was called a conductor on the Underground Railroad. The conductors were the people that carried them between stations, you know, or got them to the first station, and then the station masters would take it from there. So the conductors were often the ones that were uh, the first point of contact for people escaping slavery, and they were taken safely to the first station. And the first station master would take it from there and move them on to the next station. So it was a very interesting system that went through the, covering a lot of geography across Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan. So that statue in Battle Creek is well worth your time visiting. It is quite breathtaking. And there's a tremendous amount of detail in the statue. So if you are visiting the city, certainly seek it out. It's very easy to find by searching it on Google Maps. It's uh, right near the downtown area. So if you enjoyed listening to today's podcast, please take a minute to leave a review on whatever app that you are listening to. And if you'd like to support the work that I'm doing here, feel free to check out my website, michaeldelaware.com and and there's some uh, resources on there where you can help me out. There's also a way you can contact me if you have ideas Ideas or suggestions about other topics that I could carry on Tales of Southwest Michigan's past. I'd love to hear from you. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday, thanks for listening.